electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, just try and make some money. My job, not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. This is a macro market where stocks go up or down based on the strength of the overall economy. And the performance of individual companies, called the microeconomy, is often lost in the shuffle. But how the heck do we predict where the economy is headed? If you're a money manager, you've been taught pretty much from day one, as I was, to watch the bond market for clues about where stocks are going. Now, I'm always pointing out that the bond market, which I know is incredibly boring, that the bond market is much larger than the stock market. More important, bond yields are tells. That means they can tell you, say, when stocks are overpriced. Which brings me to today's session. You couldn't tell from the averages with the Dow inching up 54 points, S&P declining 0.33%, and the NASDAQ losing 0.70%. But for many stocks, today was absolutely hideous. The house of pain. At the same time, it was a glorious day for bond prices, which rallied again, cutting their yields even more dramatically. You know, the benchmark 10-year Treasury bond currently pays 1.3%. Oh, you don't want to buy that? When you see that kind of action in Treasuries, it's supposed to be a real bad sign for the economy. There's just one nagging problem. What the bond market's saying right now doesn't seem to make much sense to many people including me. There are discordant voices out that they're pointing out that bonds don't seem to be functioning as a predictor of the broader economy anymore. If they were, rates would be going up, not down, because we know inflation is raging right now and business is getting stronger. Worse, many investors listened to Fed Chief Jay Powell's two days of testimony on the Hill and came away feeling like he's simply out of touch. He keeps saying that inflation is transitory. But they're convinced everything's going up in price, especially labor, the kind of inflation businesses most fear. 
So we have to ask, who's right? Is it the bond market or the inflation numbers and the growth numbers? And more importantly, what does that mean for stocks in your portfolio? Are the stocks that are getting crushed an opportunity or are they fool's gold? First, I've been in this business long enough to know that you don't quibble with the bond market. I take what it says loud and clear because historically when I've gone against it, it hasn't worked out well for me. Not always, but most of the time. Right now, though, there is a real conundrum, and it's putting major pressure on many stocks, especially the speculative high-growth names that have profited ever since younger people got into the stock market more than a year ago. Let's go over the theories that explain the action in the bond market. Again, I'm trying not to bore you. I know, okay? And I'm also not going to get political. I don't do that, okay? Theory one, it's possible that our bond yields are plummeting simply because U.S. bonds offer better risk-free returns than bonds for anywhere else in the world. All sorts of countries issue bonds. This is important. Worldwide, there are trillions of dollars constantly searching for the highest quality, most liquid, and highest yielding pieces of paper. Believe it or not, right now, that's U.S. Treasuries. You can go in and out of billions of dollars. That's liquidity. So it's entirely possible that the action in the bond market means absolutely nothing because our rates are better than most countries. Under this theory, well, what are bonds? Well, they're a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Okay? If that's true, then the higher yielding dividend stocks deserve to go higher. Remember I told you Clorox is bottoming you? You can think about Kimberly, Procter, PepsiCo's going up. And for everything else, there's really no impact whatsoever. Theory two, bonds may be going up in price, down in yield, because Jay Powell is absolutely right when he says that our current bout of inflation is merely temporary. We got a red-hot CPI number this week, but the key components, used cars, foodstuffs, energy, they may all be collapsing at once. I called the top in oil today. Well, it's an attempted call top, right? I mean, it may, not, it may still go up, but I think I smell it. I smell it. It's too high. Wage inflation, I think, should moderate once the extra unemployment benefits expire at the end of the summer and more people come out looking for jobs. Now, if this theory is correct, it would be incredibly bullish for stocks. However, if that were really true, you'd expect the turbocharged growth stocks to roar because they thrive in a low inflation environment. Instead, they got obliterated. So stocks are saying this view is definitely wrong. Theory three. There's always the chance that bond yields are falling because the economy is headed for a slowdown. Given that today we got the lowest jobless claims number since the pandemic began, I find that hard to believe. And by the way, the small business the small business information we get shows that small business is incredibly strong. Wells Fargo told us over and over again how strong business is. Unless, of course, the Delta COVID variant ends up hitting everything, slowing business more than we realize. Possibility. No, I don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe that we're on the verge of putting masks back on or because people refuse to get vaccinated. Unfortunately, it is a possibility, a real possibility. If this is actually about the Delta variant, that explains why so many cyclical stocks that need a strong economy have been slaughtered. Those are the three scenarios, okay? Let's relate them to your portfolio. I believe the second one, the bond market's predicting that inflation's peak and J-PAL's correct, is, is, is right. But you know what? When it comes to trying to figure out things... You know, it's not that my, my opinion doesn't matter. See, my job is to figure out what the big buyers and sellers are thinking, not what Jim Cramer's thinking. I know what I'm thinking. But if theory two is right, how do we explain the weakness in so many parts of this market, including areas that should be thriving in a peak inflation scenario? I think I have it. I think I have it. And it's none of those. None. Okay? I think right now we have a lot of speculation in the system. 
in part because the government's given away so much money, in part because there's a new cohort of investors, younger people who tend to borrow money to buy everything from Bitcoin, which is being crushed, by the way, to all sorts of high growth stocks that they don't know the first thing about. And, of course, all this junk that they keep taking up that probably should be much lower. These younger investors seem drawn to technology, biotech, crypto, meme stocks, the latter being the unfortunate name for the stocks that have become playthings for the Reddit contingent that keeps trying to get game the ungameable. I think these speculators are starting to get blown out. I knew it was going to happen eventually. After a prolonged period where they had an amazing run. In some ways, this stock market mirrors the slow motion washout we're seeing in cryptocurrencies and the big mean names like AMC, which actually went up today, or GameStop, which rallied eight points from its low to close down 80 cents. Frankly, I don't trust either of those things. Uh, GameStop's up 785%. AMC's up 1,598 points. Come on, enough. Just ring the register, ready. At the same time, we've had so many IPOs and SPAC deals that the supply of new stock is overwhelming the natural demand, especially since big money managers don't want these speculative stocks and the smaller investors don't have the conviction to buy more into weakness. Under that scenario, stocks just don't languish. They go down, especially the speculative stocks, the commodity-oriented names, and the recent IPO names that nobody cares about. So why exactly are stocks going down right now? Most people think the answer lies in the yield curve, that bonds are doing what bonds are doing. I get that. Uh, that's the way I was taught, too. But right now, no. The, we, we have an answer that, that, that can drive a theory. Number one, that bond yields are falling because foreign money is flowing in overseas, and it means nothing. It means nothing to do with the stock market. That's right. That's what's happening. Many stocks are getting hit here because there's not enough cash to buy all the junk that's been created of late. All the second-rate tech and biotech, some, something or other as a service place. Stocks are going down because just like the merchandise in the store, there's just too much inventory. So it's being marked out. Speculative ones are always the first to go. The underwriters are just not being vetted, and for the most part, the SPACs aren't worthy of your time or money. If the IPO spigot doesn't turn off, if more and more new stocks keep being pumped out, then it doesn't matter what the bond market says. Stocks will keep falling under their own weight, the smaller ones first. That's why FANG was the last to go down. What can turn things around? Bottom line, if we get a resonance from new underwritings and the earnings trend continue to be good, then I remain a bull. Oh, but you got to stop the new supply, please. Hence the answer, stocks are going down because people need to sell. See, because they don't want to lose money. Mark in Ohio, Mark. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on. And thank you from all of us that are new and learning how to invest. And that's what I want. I want you to learn correctly. Teach a man to fish. I don't want you to just meme it up. What's up? So going on technicals, and fundamentals, I know you've been a fan of Southwest for some time. You bet. But my, question, my question relates specifically to United Airlines. It has been on a downward trend last three months and appears to be completely oversold and now below the 200-day moving average, regardless of all the recent good news like purchasing new planes, right. including electric, increased passengers, hiring thousands, profitable uh, potentially in July, and so on. I have a fairly hefty position in, in United and starting to get nervous. Do I continue to hold for bluer skies or do I cut my well, losses? I am a bull in the airlines because I think that uh, what you're going to get is uh, you're going to get international, international back. So I'm going to say, uh, uh, believe in Scott Kirby, don't sell the stock. All right. I think stocks are, are falling because there isn't enough money to buy all the new supply coming online, which, is, by the way, is mostly second rate. I, if, we, if it stops... It being bullish would be a good thing. And I'm not turning against this market, but holy cow, please stop printing more, more stuff. Now, on Man Money Tonight, the labor shortage as opposed to the stock longage and the care economy are front and center when it comes to the reopening. And with federal unemployment benefits expiring in September, what could it mean for the broader economy? Why don't we go straight to the source? Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Then from Etsy to Poshmark, the stock market has never looked so artistic. 
I'm digging into which secondhand names could be the crafting king. And of course, your gaming got caught up in the meme media. And after uh, mania, and I got to tell you, after some insider selling and a fall from its highs, could it be game over for Corsair? I'm getting the latest from the CEO. So stay with a still bullish, but sick of new merchandise, Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This week, we got a lot more clarity on President Biden's economic agenda. And whether you like it or hate it, there's no denying that it's big. The White House initially wanted a $2 trillion infrastructure and jobs package, but that, that's now been split into two separate pieces of, of legislation. You've got the smaller bipartisan bill for physical infrastructure. That's nearly $600 billion in new money for roads, bridges, broadband, and modernizing the electric grid. We're going to mention that in a second. Then you've got a whole bunch of other goodies that the administration jammed into their $3.5 trillion budget proposal. Something Democrats can pass on a party line vote, assuming the whole caucus is on board. We're talking about universal pre-kindergarten for three- and four-year-olds, expanded Medicare coverage, green energy, two years of free community college, and an extension of the tax credits from the stimulus bill, including the boosted child tax credit that went into effect this week. 
There's a lot going on here. Fortunately, we were lucky enough to catch up with Gina Raimondo. She's the Secretary of Commerce earlier today, frequent guests. We're going to get a clear picture of the president's agenda. So why don't you take a look? Madam Secretary, welcome back to Mad Money. Great to be with you. How are you? Oh, I am well, thank you. I hope the same. I have something that has been on my mind for some time, which is how can we have so many job openings and so few applicants? And you answered the question for me in a series of interviews. We have a national women's employment crisis, and that's somewhat behind this, isn't it? Yes and no. Uh, schools opening was a, was a great thing. Child care opening back up helped women. But I wouldn't say we are. I don't think that is behind us. We still have millions of women who are out of the workforce. And we know the number one reason that they say they're out of the workforce is they're still struggling to get Um, care for their kids or their elderly loved ones. So I think, Jim, we talk, you and I have talked a lot about how to make America competitive. We must invest more in our caregiving infrastructure so that women can participate fully in the labor market if we're going to really compete. I've been thinking about the infrastructure bill, and I think when I read your writings and your interviews, I am struck. The infrastructure bill really would help the most, I'd say the people who have the best uh, shot of doing well in America, white males. But that's not who needs the help. We need women, Hispanics, blacks to learn how to code, to learn how to do things as part of the new economy. But I rarely see the government promoting that. Well, what you are saying is, of course, music to my ears, and I'm so proud to work for President Biden, who does say that and who has put forth to Congress a serious proposal around, you know, uh, calling for a million to two million apprenticeships and making sure that women and people of color have their fair share of those, investing in home care, investing in uh, paid family leave, investing in public pre-K. You know, every kid ought to be able to go to pre-K in a public school. It's not enough to go to school just K through 12. Um, And, you you know, when I became governor of Rhode Island, Jim, a third of Rhode Island kids couldn't even go to all-day public kindergarten, which is bad for their kids and and bad for their parents, mostly moms, who need to hold down a full-time job. So, listen, I couldn't agree more with you. I've, I've talked to a lot of CEOs recently who have said, you got to help us out. We need women to come back to work. We've been offering promotions to women, some of our star employees, and they have said no because they're juggling the demands of taking right. care of their loved ones. So I think... This is as important to our competitiveness as anything else. Well, you and I both know a lot of good business people. And and we have to speak about that because I know you've got a very important supply chain conference coming up. But when we speak about a Mark Benioff uh, at Salesforce, uh, Jeff Lawson at Twilio, they are committed to teaching people how to code at home. Why do we not have that summit where we literally show people online, maybe even through YouTube, how to get started so they feel emboldened? Yeah. So, uh, by the way, whenever I'm with you, I just love the energy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That is a good idea. It's not enough. Some people, um, and I live this as governor, it is more than that. We have to provide basic math and 
you know, basic digital skills, uh, digital literacy, and then work up to what you're talking about. But the answer is absolutely. And by the way, girls need to be given that opportunity. People of color need to be given that opportunity. We are never going to be able to compete unless we produce a lot more people who have digital skills, coding skills, data science skills, and we are never going to be able to do that if we're only focused on white men. Amen. So it's just so true. I just wish the country had more of an imperative on that. I do want to get to another issue that's very important. Uh, we keep hearing, and I know Jay Powell's doing his absolute best, that one of the big problems with inflation, which would therefore make people feel that interest rates should go up, are supply chain issues. I personally have issues that have to do with the fact that we're importing so much from China instead of making things here. But I also recognize we have COVID issues. But I think that we need to address this as companies and as a government. And you're putting together a summit that, to me, is going to give us a lot of answers to what's really going on. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Supply chains are so disrupted, like nothing I've ever seen, which isn't too surprising. We shut the economy down precipitously and like never before. Companies stopped ordering and now we're trying to crank back up uh, and it's disrupting in semiconductors, food, etc. One of the areas very disrupted is in home building. Yeah, I'm sure you see it even in your life, you know, go to Home sure. Depot to buy some lumber prices are very high so tomorrow uh, we are having a home building and construction supply chain convening at the white house i'll be one of the leaders in that we're going to bring together people from uh, all parts of the industry retail sawmills loggers etc and really find out what's going on and what can the government do and what can industry do to unclog the supply chain? The key to bringing down prices is more supply. Well, Madam Secretary, I'm so thrilled that you have an open and engaging dialogue, I believe, with business people, because business is the greatest force for social change in this country, but it must be engaged and at times be pressured in the way you pressure it, which is you speak the language. And if you speak yeah. the language, they're going to do what you want. So I want to congratulate you for everything you do. Everyone's following your moves because we all know that what you're trying to do is bring America together and have business be an engine for growth and change. So thank you for everything you're doing. Amen to all of that. And I'm going to stay at it. We're just getting going. We're seeing results and we need a lot more. Oh, so I know you are. And it's, I'm proud to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo. Bad Money is back after the break. Coming up, it's a secondhand smackdown. Kramer applies a five-finger analysis to stocks you can't afford to miss. Next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Last week, when we met the CEO of Poshmark, I don't know if you saw that, it, it was at the uh, NASDAQ. This is a social commerce platform. It's basically a big digital marketplace for secondhand apparel and accessories. I thought he told such a compelling story that I kind of had a, a eureka moment, frankly. I realized we've got a powerful long-term theme going here. These web-based secondhand marketplaces are doing brisk business right now, even as their stocks have pulled back hard from their highs. But we can't let the stock determine the business. A lot of people feel that way. I talked about that at the beginning of the show. Okay, so look at this. Look at these guys. So far this year, we've already had two IPOs in this space. There's Poshmark, okay? Now, that came in January. Then it was followed up by a thing called ThreadUp in March. Kind of funny. That one's all about secondhand apparel for women and kids. Two years ago, we got The Real Real. Uh, that's the digital consignment shop for all sorts of luxury goods. Then, obviously, there's the more iconic names. eBay practically invented this business. They've seen a major resurgence since the pandemic took hold. And then, of course, there's Kramer Fave Etsy, which is more of a marketplace for handcrafted goods. But they recently bought a British secondhand marketplace called Depop in a $1.625 billion deal that closed earlier this week. It's a very popular site. Just before I get into all these pieces, when I talk about how we have too many stocks going, I do kind of mean these, and you're going to hear why. Because it has to do with what's happened in the marketplace. What makes the story so enticing, though? Simple. In the last year and a half, consumers have been transformed by COVID. People are more value conscious than they were before the pandemic. It's a new trait. Makes uh, buying used more appeal. At the same time, we're much more willing to purchase things online. And we've got lots of spending money. Look at those new child tax credits we got today. Plus, secondhand goods appeal to environmentally conscious young people because it produces much less pollution than buying something new. Think landfill. So which of these second-hand marketplaces is the best investment? Sometimes you really have to pit stocks against each other to figure out the one that you like most. So tonight we're holding a second-hand smackdown. Beyond Thunderdome style, of course, five resale marketplaces enter, one resale marketplace leaves. Let me go through them one by one so that you understand and get comfortable with which one you might like. We're going to start with Poshmark, the second-hand apparel marketplace with a social discovery kicker. In the most recent quarter, they had 7 million active buyers and nearly 5 million active sellers. Totally, they got more than 80 million registered users across the U.S., Canada, and Australia. You could argue they're just getting started. Poshmark came public with a bang in January. The IPO price at 42. Then the stock opened at nearly 105. Remember, at the beginning of the year, the market was in speculative mania mode. Now we're kind of peaked in that speculative mania mode, and we're wiping out a lot of of this excess. Poshmark's been paying for it ever since. Stocks plunged from its highs. We're talking about a 70% decline from peak to trough. Finally, seemed to bottom in mid-May, along with the rest of the turbocharged growth names. While Poshmark's rebounded nicely from its lows, in the last couple of weeks, it's erased most of those gains because the lockup on insider selling just expired. Again, too much supply. Lockups expiring, too much supply. Now that the weak hands, though, may have sold, I think you might be getting a pretty good opportunity here. On Monday, the stock caught a terrific upgrade from Stiefel, where the analysts argued it's the best positioned player in the secondhand e-commerce landscape, gave it a $50 price target. Not 100 Next up, there's one that I know very little, uh, you know, never met them or anything, but I've had to do a lot of studying for, which is a company called ThreadUp. 
Now, this one's focused on clothes, shoes, and accessories for women and children. Substantially smaller than Poshmark, even though it has a similar market capitalization, which I find is a conundrum. According to the latest data, ThreadUp had 1.3 million active buyers over the previous 12 months, but just 428,000 active sellers. Sounds like a lot of sellers, except for when it's compared to Poshmark. This thing has been a real wild trader. ThreadUp came public in March, stock price at 14, then it spiked to 31. Speculative excess a couple days later. Stock plunged back to 14 and change in mid-April, wrenching out the excess. Before recovering to 31 a couple of weeks ago, more excess. In the last few days, it was been obliterated, sinking to 25, including a hideous 8% decline today. That, again, is totally what we talked about at the top of the show. Too much merchandise, too much speculation. Third, we've got Real Real, the online consignment shop for all sorts of luxuries. This is another small one. In the latest quarter, they had less than 700,000 active buyers over the previous 12 months. These guys have had a rough time. In late 2019, not long after the Real Real came public, a CNBC investigation revealed serious problems with the company's authentication processes. It's a major issue when you're dealing in luxury items. Then the pandemic arrived and the stock collapsed from the mid-teens to the mid-single digits. After that, Real Real gradually worked its way higher. Then the stock took off late last year when the company reported some marginally better than expected sales. Since then, though, they've had two more quarters that weren't particularly impressive, and the stock's pulled back from its highs, including a more than 2% decline today. Unlike Poshmark or ThreadUp, the Real Reels doesn't have a consistent narrative for the bulls to rally around, other than the fact that my wife used it. How about the big dogs? Everybody knows eBay. They have 187 million buyers and 20 million sellers worldwide. Stocks had a remarkable resurgence over the past year and a half. Don't know if you've been paying attention. In 2020, eBay delivered 19% revenue growth, 49% earnings growth. New management here. They also bought back $5.1 billion worth of stock. That's big, even though it's a $46 billion company. When eBay reported its most recent results in late April, the headline numbers came in better than expected. But management gave cautious guidance for the next quarter and a cautious commentary over the rest of the year. See, they're worried about what happens to e-commerce as the world goes back to normal. Initially, the stock got multiple downgrades, got hammered from the, mid, uh, from the low 60s to the mid-50s. But then a funny thing happened. After that downdraft, eBay spent months steadily working its way higher to the point where the stock hit a new all-time high a couple weeks ago. Finally, Etsy. And Etsy's a little different. This is mainly a marketplace for handcrafted goods. I go there a lot. Don't know if you do. But thanks to the recent acquisition of Depop, They've got a second-hand marketplace with 4 million active buyers, 2 million active sellers. While Depop's a small piece of the pie, it had triple-digit sales growth last year. As for Etsy stock, this thing's rebounded hard off the May lows. But again, in the last couple of weeks, it's pulled back from 205 to 182. Why? Because these big growth stocks have fallen out of favor again. And you know my thesis, there's too many of them. So now, uh, how do the players stack up against each other? Now, to do that, we have to talk numbers, to get apples to apples as best as we can. When it comes to the smaller uh, secondary marketplace, I like Poshmark the most. It posted 42% revenue growth last quarter, positive earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. In comparison, ThreadUp only grew at 15% uh, over the same period. Negative EBITDA. And they did not expect to turn a profit until 2024, a year later than Poshmark. I can't go there. Not a fan. Of the three smaller ones, the real reels actually poised to have the fastest growth going forward. But that's because 2020 was a big down year for them. So they're up against very easy comparisons. Even as the growth picking up here, well, they're losing lots of money. Wall Street expects a buck 78 per share of losses this year. Again, the real real spotty track record. I'd rather go with the more consistent Poshmark and no CNBC investigation of them. How about the major players, eBay and Etsy? I think these are both great companies. Choice here has more to do with your preferences. 
Uh, eBay is a terrific value stock, trades at just over 15 times next year's earnings estimates, even as it's got 15% earnings growth. I like that. Etsy is much more of a growth story, although they, they, they're up against some very tough comparisons over the next couple of quarters. After that, I think its long-term prospects are fantastic. Bottom line, you know what? It's a whole new category, and I like it. It's a bull market category, secondhand. But in this market, you need to be selective of your stock picking, which is why I prefer uh, Poshmark if you want the smaller high growth, eBay if you care about value, and Etsy if you've got the patience to stick with one of the great long-term growth stories. Tom in Massachusetts. Tom. Hi, Jim. Booyah. Booyah, Tom. What's up? Jim, thank you for all the great work you do. You're amazing. I just feel like uh, you're three steps ahead of everyone. Uh, You're very kind. You're very kind. And uh, we we really appreciate it out here. So my question, Jim, is about Lowe's. uh, Kind of versus Home Depot. Lowe's has 1,970 stores. Home Depot has 2,300 stores. HD's got a little bit bigger yield. But what impresses me about the Depot is um, they just announced that $20 billion share repurchase you know, which exhibits mm-hmm. strong, strong conviction in their business. So I hold them both in my portfolio, but my question is, should I sell Lowe's and move into maybe a Costco gym? You know, I can never tell people to sell Lowe's since Marv Ellison took over. It's a remarkable transformation. You can see it at your Lowe's. I, can, I have three different Lowe's that I go to, and they are just sensational. But I also like Home Depot. I would not sell either. You're not that diversified, but boy, you're in two great ones. Costco recommended it just last night. These are three of the best companies we have in America. Okay, look, I love the secondhand categories. A whole new world. This is it, okay? But you need to be selective. I need you to know this is the high growth one, this is the value one, and this is the junior going to senior growth stock. I probably like this one best. Why? Not just because it's from Brooklyn. All right, much more mad money ahead. Corsair Gaming has tumbled from its highs if you're getting caught up in the meme trade. But is there more to the story than just being a Reddit's fave? Boy, I am getting sick of speculation because it's being wrenched out of this market. But I've got the exclusive with Corsair. Then the United States has a chance to show the world who we truly are or were or can be. I'm going to reveal what the plan entails. And it's a little harsh lesson. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Craig. high-quality companies get the Rodney Dangerfield treatment. They get no respect. Take Corsair Gaming, which makes all sorts of premium gaming hardware from peripherals like mice and keyboards to high-performance computer components, the ones that make you win. I think Corsair has got a great business, and their most recent quarter was magnificent. Just a gigantic earnings beat. Raise guidance. Right now, Wall Street's pretty dubious about anything connected to gaming. There's a sense people will spend less time playing games now that we can go places again. Although, I, that's not pointing out by any data. I mean, we got to learn more about this. But that's why, of course, their stock's been stuck in the low 30s since March. A month ago, the memesters at Wall Street Bets tried to gun it up. They pushed it from 32 to 42 in less than a day. But these meme moves, well, you know what? They're not the real deal. Within a week, you've given up all its games. I've been- well, now this stock's back down to 30. Could it be worth buying here? Let's check in with Andy Paul, the co-founder and CEO of Corsair Gaming. to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Paul, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim, and uh, good to be here. Okay, so Andy, I look at all these new releases you have that just make things better and better, more uh, lifelike. I look at what NVIDIA's doing in the chips, and I say to myself, anybody who thinks that somehow, now that the pandemic's winding down, we're not going to game is frankly completely out of touch with the American and worldwide consumer. You must have good data that proves that out, correct? 
Yeah, I do. So it's, it's interesting, Jim. I've spent uh, a lot of time looking at data. And one of the things I've realized is that most investors don't really have a good grasp of what's happening and what's going to happen with, uh, with gaming, hardware, peripherals, streaming gear, that sort of thing. So I'll give you a few numbers. Sure. Firstly, if you look at the growth in the number of gamers over the last five years, and let's forget about COVID for a second, you just look at 15 through 19, what you see is about a 3 to 4% growth every year. When you look at gaming video software, that grows at 6 or 7%. When you look at gaming hardware, that average is about 24%. So the point is that the fastest part of the market that's growing is the gear that people are buying to make their gameplay better. And so it's more that gamers are spending more time playing games and spending more money um, to make their games better on, on hardware. And that's been a trend over the last four years. Now, if you look at what happened last year in 2020, when more people were spending time at home, all that accelerated, uh, but the same ratios. So, you know, the 3% more gamers went to 14%, the, uh, you know, uh, 24% growth in, or 14% growth in uh, gaming software, but hardware jumped to almost 80% growth. Okay, well, well, so what's happening is people are doubling down on buying gear, um, and quite honestly, that went on, even though, as you mentioned, graphics cards. I mean, last year, today, it's almost impossible to get a graphics card. Right, so, right. Well, but, but, you know, and then I think about what Netflix did today. And I think if I, wa- I watch Netflix on my very good HP PC, my wife watches it on her Apple. I mean, won't many of her things even enhance the experience if they get in big in gaming? Yeah, that's right. So... You know, we're still at the very early stages. I, I, the numbers I've got show that last year, only about 5% of gamers in the U.S. actually bought any incremental gear. So it's a very untapped market. In fact, if you look at the last three or four years where you start getting into refresh cycles, still only about a 20% of premium gamers are buying gear. So huge untapped market. Um, and if you draw any parallels between any other sport, you'll very quickly see that, you know, you talk to somebody about how much money they spend on golf clubs or skis, um, you know, one of the things I like to think about is the last, is the last, is the first set of golf clubs you bought, the last set you owned. Of course not. Same with skis. So, what happens is people start learning how to buy uh, and use, you know, uh, gaming equipment. They're going to keep upgrading over the next few years, and that's the same with building gaming PCs, uh, buying content creator gear, and and also gaming peripherals. So. We're still at the very early stages of a sort of a long-term generational shift here. Okay, so I'm a huge fan of what Adobe does. All right, I mean they just do so much good stuff. I have to imagine that everything that you do on Adobe could be enhanced by using Corsair equipment. Well, it could. I mean, it, Adobe is not the central point of what content creators are, are using to stream. We're really involved at the moment in the in the uh, letting them broadcast their video, and actually that's a good segue, Jim, because. I really want to spend a little bit of time talking about some new products that we've launched today. Uh, one of them is that we're in the camera market now. We've launched the Elgato Face Cam. Uh, this is what it looks like. Uh, it's a beautiful camera. Um, you, in fact, you're looking at me through the Face Cam. Um, our code name for this uh, internally was not a webcam. And so, interesting background here. You know, Elgato is a company we bought three years ago. They've been in the streaming space for about 10 years, making specialized gear. Um, and most of it was uh, making an interface between high-end professional cameras and PCs. Okay. And so what most high-end streamers actually use for the camera broadcasting is DLSR cameras. 
but in order to get that into a PC, you need to you know, convert the HDMI to a USB stream. So that's what we've been doing, and we've become expert at it. We finally decided to jump into the space. But what we wanted to bring to the streamers and content creators was a device that is like a webcam, except it's got all the controls and features that you see in a DLSR camera. So, for example, I've got this beautiful, um, you know, glass lens. I've got a Sony uh, sensor, digital sensor in the back of this. I've got software that allows me to control, um, you know, white balance, uh, shutter speed, right. contrast, and I can save all those settings into the flash in the webcam. So it's really just used like using a DLSR camera. It gives great okay. high quality output at 1080p and 60 frames a second. Right. So. Well, all right. Well, uh, uh, let me say, I mean, all this stuff's very interesting, but, you know, there were these people, these Wall Street bet guys kind of hijacked your stock. Uh, <laughs> wh- wh- what did you make of that? I know you did sell stock into it. And boy, I can't blame you because it was so artificial. But what did you make about the fact that they chose your stock? Well, how does that happen? So, firstly, if you look at the, all the message boards on, you know, any of the retail stock programs, 99% of the comments are 100% positive. Mostly people that have used Corsair gear know about us, know about our long 25-year history. Everyone is super uh, positive about it. But unfortunately, you know, as, as you well know, they're balanced out by, you know, the, the, the short uh, hedge funds that, that spend their life shorting. So that's really a balance. And obviously, we've seen that with a lot of uh, that's stocks. That's what it was. But- it was a battle between the long and the short. It's not about Corsair, correct, sir? That's right. That's right. All yeah. right. Well, we're, we're, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it at that. But I love your equipment. Uh, and on the, I think that you can design stuff that looks really great on yours. That's, I know that's what my daughter's trying to do, so I know I'm in good shape on this. Anyway, Andy Paul, co-founder and CEO of Corsair Gaming, CRSR. Great to see you again, sir. Good to talk to you. All right. Thanks, Jim. I, I, I frankly, I don't understand how Logitech could go up so much. You know I really like Logitech, and this one stayed the same. But I understand, and I hated what happened with the memes long short. It had nothing to do with the company. It may have money spent Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. It is time. It's time for The Lightning Round. What's that? And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Keep that. It's time for the lightning round. Crazy round. Let's start with Ginger in Arizona. Ginger. Hey, Jim. How are you? I am good. Thank you for asking, Ginger. How about you? I'm great. Big shout out from beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, I love Scottsdale. Four seasons there. I I don't play golf, but I wanted to take it up there. What's up? Yeah, you you need to learn. Uh, My question for you is I've owned a mining stock, Rio Tinto, for over a year now. I think Rio Tinto is actually a good company. Now, you do need a stronger economy than we have, but it's well run. I'd like you to hold on to it. And then you go to Zishan in Virginia. Zishan. Booyah, Jimmy Trill. Thank you for taking my call. My question is for a stock that went to the moon and came back. The company is QuantumScape. Oh, my. You know, what I'm hearing, and the reason why it's been going down, frankly, is there are people at other companies, notably Ford, that think they have a better battery. So what it's really going down about is not that the battery doesn't work, but that there are other companies with better batteries. And I'm beginning to believe that is the case. Don in Tennessee. Don. 
Good evening, Jimmy Chill, and a big southern booyah from your loyal crew in Memphis, sir. Well, hold on. Yeah, yeah, i got to tell you, the Chill says I should have moved to Tennessee. Everybody keeps moving there. It's amazing. I'm not kidding. Hey, all $1,500 right. bucks for a flight to Nashville. Isn't that expensive? That's all right. All right. Hey, I'll watch you all the time, my friend. Many thanks Thank for you. all you do. It's a pleasure to Thank be you. on your show. So my lightning round question is in regards to VMware. Seems like a few months ago, I recall we had some positive things to say about BMW, and now with the recent separation from Dell, the departure of their CEO back to Intel, the stock's been fluctuating between the mid 160s, currently closing at 150 and change, yeah. I believe. This can't seem to maintain any constant positive momentum. I'll tell you the truth, I'd rather own Dell than I would VMware. I mean, because of the change in, in the structure, I'd rather be bet with Michael Dell. Let's go to John in Arizona. John. Hello, Jimmy. How you doing? I am good. The chill's fine. How about you? I'm doing all right. A lot of rain out here. <laughs> Same okay, here. I have a stock called Vero Incorporation. Yeah, Vero should it, be. Look, Vero, it, they've got to show the better data. they got to go out of stage two and into stage three. If the stage three is good as stage two for a lot of what they're doing uh, in cancer, then I think the stock goes much higher. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, Kramer breaks down how the White House can help a key U.S. ally and stare down its ongoing chess match with China. Next. Jim Kramer, you're one of my heroes. I look forward to your show every weeknight. Thank you so much for helping beginning investors like me. When you talk about the market, I just believe that you're spot on. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Every night we watch you, I have learned and earned. The United States really has, it has an incredible chance here. It's got a chance to show the rest of the world who we are, that we stand by our allies, that we're a good friend to have, that we're not a pitiful, helpless giant. Right now, Taiwan's faced with a COVID outbreak and far too few vaccines. They're also in the fight of their lives to maintain their de facto independence from the People's Republic of China. So we can kill not one, but two birds with one stone. If we help Taiwan get vaccinated, we save lives. But we also show China that we mean business without getting the military involved. Sure, last month, our government tripled the number of vaccines to Taiwan with a shipment of 2.5 million doses. And a bunch of Taiwanese tech companies are buying 10 million doses from Germany. But this is a country of 23 million people. And right now, only 6% of them are vaccinated. That's not enough. Don't get me wrong. I think we have an obligation to help vaccinate the rest of the world simply because it is the right thing to do. Millions of Americans refuse to get the jab, and our government's sitting on something like 80 million spare doses of the Moderna vaccine. So I think it's time for the White House to step up and help our allies. I know there are billions of people around the world who need this thing, but the harsh realities of geopolitics mean that Taiwan should be at the head of the line, even though their outbreak is relatively small compared to what we're seeing in the rest of the world. Here's why. Don't get mad at me. I know I don't like to conflate these two, but you've got to hear me out. Right now, I believe the single largest strategic challenge facing our country is an increasingly belligerent China. And the Chinese government wants to take Taiwan. They just want to take it. President Xi recently made a speech where he called it his first priority. 
Remember, Taiwan exists in a weird legal gray area. In reality, it's independent, but pretty much every country on Earth pretends it's part of China. So long as China doesn't do anything to enforce it. Because Taiwan's a U.S. ally and a great ally, the Chinese government probably won't invade. But they've been conducting a relentless pressure campaign in order to make Taiwan's government more pliable. That includes sending their fighter planes into Taiwan's airspace all the time and interfering with their attempts to buy COVID vaccines from the rest of the world. Our government needs to send China a message. Got to send them a message that we won't let Taiwan twist in the wind. And the easiest way to do that would be to send them millions more doses of the vaccine. In addition to being a true democracy, Taiwan's also got a vibrant business community, one that's dominated by Taiwan Semiconductor, the huge chip manufacturer that's arguably the most important company in the world right now. They're one of the major players that just secured 10 million doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine from Germany. Taiwan Semi makes most of the chips used for the Internet of Things and industrial purposes, including automobiles. They're committed to building a gigantic foundry in Arizona. Our semiconductor industry is toast without them because our companies mostly just design chips now. They don't manufacture them. So why not help them out? When the White House is figuring out how to allocate vaccines to the rest of the world, I think Taiwan's special status needs to be taken into account. We're sitting on a million doses, 80 million doses, 80 million Taiwan doesn't even need a quarter of that. I think we should just give them away. If Americans don't want them, we might as well help people in the rest of the world while lending a hand to one of our closest, most embattled allies. Embattled. Frankly, anything that deters China from making a move on Taiwan could ultimately save many more lives than the vaccines themselves. You see, the price of freedom is a lot higher than the price of vaccines. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you next time. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.